0: Good morning. Good morning. In the name of Christ's name, we that opening, Craig. There's, it certainly uh, helps us during difficult times to remember that we were made to live forever, and by the grace of Christ, we came. I invite you to turn in your Bibles to the book of Daniel, chapter 7. Daniel is an interesting book. It's a book that uh, is sometimes hard to understand. And yet it contains so much truth. When you think about Daniel, think about a book that starts out with the first six chapters or history. Daniel tells his story of how he was taken from Babylon, or taken from Jerusalem to Babylon basically, and other young men with him, and some of the things that they encountered, including Meshach and, and Abednego and all that, Meshach, Shadrach, and Abednego and the things that they faced. And then in chapter 7, he starts talking about visions. And he talks about things that he sees that I believe were there to foretell the future, but perhaps more importantly, to comfort us and to comfort God's people. That goes back to what Craig said. In dark times, we look for comfort. And God gave Daniel comfort for his people. This was written around 530 B.C., so a little over 500 years before the arrival of Christ, and yet Daniel was looking forward to his coming as well. I'm going to start in verse 15 of Daniel chapter 7 and read down to verse 28 in the chapter. It says, I, Daniel, was grieved in my spirit, in the midst of my body, and the visions of my head troubled me. I came near unto one of them that stood by and asked him the truth of all this. So he told me, and made me know the interpretation of the things. These great beasts, which are four, are four kings, which shall arise out of the earth. But the saints of the Most High shall take the kingdom and possess the kingdom forever, even forever and ever. Then I would know the truth of the fourth beast, which was diverse from all the others, exceeding dreadful, whose teeth were of iron and his nails of brass, which devoured, breaking pieces, and stamped the residue with his feet. And of the 10 horns that were in his head, and of the other which came up, and before whom three fell, even of that horn that had eyes, and a mouth that spake very great things, whose look was more stout than his fellows. I beheld and the same horn made war with the saints and prevailed against them, until the Ancient of Days came, and judgment was given to the saints of the Most High, and the time came that the saints possessed the kingdom. Thus he said, the fourth beast shall be the fourth kingdom upon earth, which shall be diverse from all kingdoms and shall devour the whole earth and shall tread it down and break it in pieces. And the 10 horns out of this kingdom are 10 kings that shall arise and another shall rise after them and he shall be diverse from the first and he shall subdue three kings. And he shall speak great words against the most high and shall wear out the saints of the Most High, and shall think to change times and laws, and they shall be given into his hand until a time and times and the dividing of time. But the judgment shall sit, and they shall take away his dominions to consume and to destroy it unto the end. And the kingdom and dominion and the greatness of the kingdom under the whole heaven shall be given to the people of the saints of the Most High, whose kingdom is an everlasting kingdom, and all dominions shall serve and obey him. Hitherto is the end of the matter. As for me, Daniel, my cogitations, much troubled me, and my countenance changed in me, but I kept the matter in my heart. All right, if you read the first part of this chapter, he's talking about three beasts that come up. And then there's a fourth beast. And I'm not going to go into a, like trying to, understand this from a prophetic sense today. I want to pull some truths from this chapter that I think are pertinent to every age for Christians, but especially in the end times. There are some people who believe that this fourth beast is the kingdom of Israel. That has never made a lot of sense to me. I've I've tried to follow the logic, but it, it hasn't really resonated with me. And some believe that it was Rome, and this was talking about Rome dominating the known world. That made a little more sense to me. And, but I'm not sure. There are others that believe that there is a coming kingdom in the end of time when there'll be one world government. And that'll dominate the entire world. And there are some who think that the ten horns uh, represent the ten nations in the, in the European Union. Um, but that number changes. You know, The British recently pulled out of the European Union So I'm not sure exactly what all this means. Some of it is very cryptic, difficult to follow, but there are truths here that I think are very relevant and very pertinent to our day that can really comfort us. I'd like to focus on a couple of ideas here. First of all, notice that it talks about this beast's war with the saints. This beast is at war with those who love God, and those who are true. Now, this that has been true throughout history, hasn't it? We've had a lot of systems and a lot of governments that have set their uh, attention on Christianity and have tried to destroy the saints. That's happened over and over again. Back in Nazi Germany in the 30s and 40s, uh, there was a, a widespread spread effort To take the church and conform it into the image of what Hitler wanted and unfortunately some of the churches kind of went along with that, others resisted the communists attempted to wipe out the church the Soviet Union, the Chinese the Cubans have done that there are many that have waged war against the saints, so I think that even though we can't necessarily look at this and say well I know this means exactly that it's talking about something that recurs in history. And it's happening again now. In America, in the Western world, there is an attempt to change Christianity, not necessarily to wipe it out, but to change it so that it is no longer recognizable as the that as the faith of Christ out of out of his word. We notice that in verse 21, the same form horn that came out made war with the saints and prevailed against them and then when you look down in verse 21 or 23 um i'm sorry verse 24 and and on to 25 he talks about the 10 horns are 10 kings that shall arise and then it talks about this uh another shall arise after them another king and be diverse from the first and subdue three kings and he shall speak great words against the most high so here you have another power that is directing his anger against god's people and against god himself so he's speaking great words against the most high and shall wear out the saints of the most high so if we if, if we try to dig into this a little bit, I, I tried to go back and look at some of the words in the Hebrew behind this, with using strongs, and looking at some of the thoughts that have been gleaned from this over, over the years. And there are some ideas that I think would help us and comfort us in America today. Oh, it's, it's uncomfortable to me when I read verse 21 that he made war with the saints and prevailed against them. And we think of God's people as being victorious. And it's not pleasant to think of some evil power prevailing against the saints. And here he talks in verse 25 about wearing out the saints. And if you look in the Hebrew at that, at the words about behind wearing out, it, it really means to just wear away, just harass constantly, to just keep pressure constantly on God's people. To literally bring them to a point of exhaustion. So that's the whole idea that's being that, that we have here. And if you if you think about the world that we live in, and if you think about governments and powers that have attempted to overcome God's people, isn't that the tactic that they use? There's like this constant harassment and pressure, and we we feel it today. I mean, there's there's always this push to force us to let go of those things that we believe are true, and to adopt something else that is a compromise to that truth. And it's just there. It just continues to be there. You know, I think a lot of us had some hopes that, with the midterm elections here in the United States, that there would be some easing of that for a while. But that kind of fizzled out. And I'm not sure what all is going on when I see how the votes are counted In some of the Democratic areas, I wonder really what's happening because it seems like there's a lot of vote counting and then all of a sudden when they get to all these absentee ballots that come pouring in, the voting slows way down and it always swings to the left, slowly but surely, until there's just enough so that the, the left candidate wins and then the voting stops. And I, I'm becoming more and more suspicious as time goes on that that's not all in the up and up, but regardless of whether it is or is isn't, this is part of, I think, Satan's attempts to wear out the saints. If you look at uh, what he says, the, this person, this king, speaks words against the Most High, he wears out the saints of the Most High, and he thinks to change times and laws. So, if you look at the Hebrew behind the word times, it's again one of those words that was borrowed from the Babylonians and the Chaldeans. It's Zaman, and it means a set time or season. So, what does that mean? What is a set time or season? And he thinks to change times and laws. Well, if you think about what's going on today, one of the things that is being done is the the natural order of God's creation is under assault. Now, I was thinking, for example, I was, I was thinking of, of an example that I, I read about just recently and I heard about just recently. And that was of a young girl, I think her name uh, is... Chloe, what's her last name? I, I have my notes here. Chloe Cole. She was talking. She was on the news. She's 18 years old, and she was talking about her experience. When she was uh, about 13, she was going through some really troubled times with her family. Some things were happening in her family and with her, and she decided that she wanted to be a boy. And so she went to her parents with this request, and while her parents wanted to accommodate and to help. So they went to the medical field. And by the time she was 15, this young girl was undergoing a double mastectomy. And then they gave her testosterone treatments. And then she realized, with a little time, she's now 18, she realized that this is all a farce. I am a girl. I've always been a girl. I always will be a girl. But here you have, you know, and she she was talking about this. She was crying about it, saying, "I can never breastfeed my children because so I had a double second. It's doubtful that I can ever have children because of the effects of the testosterone on, on my reproductive system." So. That's a tragedy. She's <laughs> suing, fortunately. She's, she's filing a multi-million dollar lawsuit against the doctors who performed this. And I hope she wins. I hope she puts them out of business. Because this kind of nonsense has to end at some point. But this is a, th- what I was thinking about was, was what is happening today with our children in America. You know, there is a season and a time in the lives of children when they should be innocent. And I remember as a child growing up, I remember the days when you could drive through any small town and it was, you know, nearing dusk maybe, and the town would be full of children, just out playing, out along the streets, you had to be careful, you can run over one of them, they'd be by the streets, they'd be, you know, they'd be in the playgrounds, and then at some point you hear mom and dad say, Johnny, Susie, it's time to come home, and then, you know, they gradually start filtering to their homes. Nobody worried about what happened to these children that day. Sometimes the parents didn't know where they were for a while because everybody felt pretty safe. And children could be children. They worried about things children are supposed to worry about. You know, they worried about the little things. They, they were growing up. But what do we have today? We have a, 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 an attempt to usurp that time in the development of children. Now children have to be, they have to cower inside their house, or they have to be really careful. They have to be taught. And we had, of course, to be careful, too. There were people that did evil things to children back then, too, but not nearly as much. Children today have to be cognizant of all the different threats that could be directed at them. And now, in addition to that, they're supposed to decide what their gender should be, and they're confronted with all of this nonsense that corrupts their childhood, Changing the times mm-hmm. the whole idea of God's universe being you know One of the, one of the truths that we can pull from Ecclesiastes Even though Ecclesiastes was written I believe to show what the world would be like if God weren't in the equation yet one of the things that he talks about there is that to everything there's a time God uses phases and changes in in nature and in humans to develop people and things, there's an attempt to overturn that. And it's a strong attempt. So when you you look at laws, again, if you go back to the Hebrew, he's, he's speaking of God's laws. There's an attempt to change morality. The things that were once viewed as right are now considered wrong. We heard, uh, my wife and I were listening to Governor Newsom in California talk about how proud he is that while much of the, the rest of the nation, many states have taken a stance against abortion, in California they are allowing women full freedom. And they had a referendum and pretty much removed all restrictions on abortion. And how proud he is of that. And you know, the wonderful things, the advances that they're making in the state of California. So if you go to California today or many places in the United States and you talk about God's moral law, you are seen as a hateful bigot who should be silenced because you're dangerous. Mm-hmm. But if you promote promiscuity and evil, you are uplifted as a person of freedom, one who gives freedom to others, completely reversing that which God has. Set up, and, and again, this is not not necessarily new. Uh, God talked about that in Isaiah five verse twenty: "Woe unto them that call evil good and good evil, that put darkness for light and light for darkness, that put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter." So there's a tendency in humans to do that, but that is especially prevalent today. So there's an attempt to overturn. God's natural order, God's laws, the way God has set up this universe. There's an attack on creation principles. And I think we, this isn't new, we've known this for quite some time. There's an attack on the institution of marriage. There's an attack on, on the idea that mothers stay home and raise their children. There's an attack on the fact that mothers even have children. You know, men are supposed to be able to have children too. And all the confusion and and all these things that happen. And this is all part of surrounding God's people with iniquity. There's evil all around. Now, do you find it vexing when you see all this evil? Does it, does it wear away at you? It does to me. When I see all of the, all the things that are going on, there's a, there's a tendency for me to feel, just to feel drained. And to hate living in a world where everything is upside down. We have, uh, there's the example of Lot. If you look in 2 Peter chapter 2. You know, Lot was a man who purposely approached Sodom. He chose to live near Sodom. And that was a big mistake. But the Bible does say this about him in 2 Peter 2. It says, in turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah into ashes, speaking of God, condemned them with an overthrow, making them an example unto those that should live ungodly, and delivered just lot, vexed with the filthy conversation of the wicked. For that righteous man dwelling among them in seeing and hearing vexed his righteous soul from day to day with their unlawful deeds. Now it's interesting when you look in the Hebrew, the the two vexed, the two words that are, are translated vexed are two different words. The one in verse seven, where it says delivered just lot, vexed with the filthy conversation of the, of the wicked. It means to tire down with toil or exhaust with labor. And it's, or to afflict or oppress with evil. So it, the, the words are very similar, but they're slightly different. So it speaks of Lot being loaded down and oppressed with evil. And then when you look at the second word, the word that is in, in verse eight, It means to be harassed or distressed. So evil surrounding a Christian has a a, a difficult effect on that Christian. It wears us down. It's something that we hate and we're vexed with it. Now, you know, there are people who say, well, the, the solution to that is just stop paying attention to what goes on around you and just sort of live in your own little world and don't worry about it unless it lands in your backyard But there's a problem with that. And that problem is that it encroaches more and more and more as time goes on. can't ignore it. It is in your backyard. It does affect your children. It does affect you. And so there comes a time when we we cannot help but pay attention. And Paul talks about living circumspectly, looking around, being aware of what's going on. So how can we deal with this? How can we deal with this harassment from Satan? Well, there's comfort right here in this scripture. Notice it says, And they shall be given into his hand until a time and times and the dividing of time. What in the world does that mean? What is time, times, and the dividing of time? Well, if you look at the Hebrew, the word time also means year, or the word that's translated time here can mean an unspecified length of time, or it can mean a year specifically. So he's saying, until a time, and two times, basically, and part of a time. So, time, times, and the dividing of time is generally translated as three and a half years. Now, does that mean exactly three and a half years? We're going to have, you know, three and a half years of this stuff, and then it's going to end? No, I don't think so, not necessarily. But what I do believe it means is this, when you look at the Scriptures... The number seven is the number of completeness. So when you look at seven years, for example, that's considered an entire time. That's cut in half. And I believe what he's saying here is that God will cut the time short that his people will suffer. He speaks about that. Jesus spoke about that. He said that if if God didn't shorten the time, the all flesh, would be destroyed. And the Greek word there in Jesus saying is sarx, which literally means flesh. So it literally means that if God didn't shorten the time on earth, humanity would destroy itself, literally destroy itself. All flesh would die. And for the sake of his saints, he will shorten the time when evil prevails. I hope, you know, Craig mentioned some things that I, I think we can we can think about Uh, the fact that we are we we find ourselves sometimes distressed and never really expecting things to return to normal. I saw an article about that the other day. Uh, Someone raised the question. He said, will our elections ever go back to normal? Will life in general ever go back to normal? And it looks like they probably won't. Not not for the current time. But then again, remember that God is going to cut that time short. And as Craig said, ultimately the answer is to recognize that longing in our hearts for eternity. That is really the final relief from all of this. However, God, even in the midst of our struggles and suffering, is going to be there for us. So, Let's think about some examples in history. You know, Hitler in World War II ran over France in four weeks' time. Everyone was expecting, you know, the French and the British together could maybe stop his advances. But he invaded France, in four weeks, he controlled the country. And Britain was suddenly left alone. And Hitler was standing on the banks of the English Channel looking across. And England was 56 miles away across the English Channel. And Hitler's generals were asking, When are you going to invade England? You've got it. You've got it nailed. Europe can be in your control. America was not involved in the war yet. In fact, America was struggling. Do we even want to get involved or do we want to stay neutral? But some of his generals said that there was something about every time Hitler would look across that channel. And he'd look over in the direction of England and they'd ask him, "When are you going to invade? He'd say, well, not yet, not yet. And they said there seemed to be a, an unexplainable fear in his eyes. And it's almost as if God said, here's where you stop, mister. And then he did the air assault on, on Britain. He bombed Britain, and, but he de- never invaded. And from that point on, it was retreat, not moving forward. We had the Soviet Union which enslaved its people and threatened the world for over 70 years. I remember as, as a young person, uh, hearing so much about the Soviet Union and, and the Christians behind the Iron Curtain, as we call it, and how much they were suffering. For 70, over 70 years, they held that nation under their throne. Not just, not just Russia, but the nations surrounding Russia. And yet, when time came for that system to end, it fell without anybody firing a it just collapsed under its own weight. it was like God said enough already this is it and we have communist China which has held its people captive since 1949 and still continues to do so but what you see in China today even as China is expanding and seems to be asserting itself more and is flexing its muscles and threatening at the same time what's happening inside of China the church is growing growing rapidly and god is going to destroy the chinese communists from the inside out I believe so he does he says enough this is enough you are not going to vex my people anymore so what can we do in the meantime how can we be faithful and overcome well my wife reminded me of something the other day. And she talked about prayer. And I told her, I said, I know, I know. I know we should pray. But I said, sometimes I get tired of praying. I said, it feels like you have to beg and beg and beg in order for God to do anything. Why? You know, my children don't have to stand and beg me for things I give them. But I knew even as, she, as I told her that, that she was right. It tells us in Luke 18 that men ought always to pray and not to faint. And I'm gonna, I'm gonna read that a passage, one, verses one through seven in Luke 18. It says, and he's and speaking of Jesus, and he spake a parable unto them to this end, that men ought always to pray and not to faint. And if you look at the, the Greek word there for faint, it means to, to just give up. saying And shall not God avenge his own elect which cry day and night unto him though he bear along with them? I just thought this was an interesting parable. And it, notice that he talks in this specific incident, when he's talking about praying, he's not just, he's not saying, he's not talking about prayer, where God supplies our daily needs or even that god would bring men to christ or that god would advance the church he's praying for vengeance on the enemies of the church and you know we look at that and we say well that's kind of different what you know why is it that paul talks about pouring hot coals of fire on men's heads by being kind to them loving your enemy and turning the other cheek but here he's talking about praying for vengeance And in that passage where Paul talks about it, he says, Vengeance is mine, saith the Lord. I will repay. Yet here he says we should cry out for vengeance. What's the difference? Well, I believe he's saying that when it comes to God's people and when it comes to those forces that work against God's people and to destroy God's people, we need to pray and remind God, God, it's time to bring judgment and vengeance to these people. It's time to end this. And by doing that, by crying out to Him, it makes a difference. It says, how long will God allow these people to keep tormenting His saints when His saints are continually crying out to Him and saying, God, when is this going to end? If you look in the book of Revelation, even the martyred saints says that are under the altar are crying out, how long, O Lord? How long? How much longer are you going to allow this evil to continue? And that takes us back to the three and a half years. God finally says, enough. This is stopping right here and right now. And it's often very dramatic. The end for those, for those systems often is very quick and dramatic. And it was, it was for the Soviet Union. It was for Adolf Hitler. It was for many others who for many years tormented and pestered, and and when the end came, it came quickly and dramatically. And so I really think we should pray. I think we should cry out to God and ask Him to bring judgment and vengeance on those who are working to destroy innocent lives and to corrupt innocent lives. And God will hear. God will hear, and He will act. Secondly, we need to watch. Do you look in Mark 13, verses 32 to 37? He says, But of that day and that hour knoweth no man, know not the angels which are in heaven, neither the Son, but the Father. Take ye heed, watch and pray, for ye know not when the time is. For the Son of Man is as a man taking a far journey, who left his house and gave authority to his servants, and to every man his work and commanded the porter to watch. Watch ye therefore, for ye know not when the master of the house cometh. At even, or at midnight, or at the cock crowing, or in the morning, lest coming suddenly he find you sleeping. And what I say unto you, I say unto all: Watch. Now, if you look at the Greek behind that word "watch," it means to take heed. Lest through remission and indulgence some destructive calamity suddenly overtake one. I was thinking about um, about a, a group of soldiers in the military who are. Camp for the night or they're on some kind of operation and, and they're resting and waiting for something. They don't just haphazardly sit out there and wait, do they? they have, they're vigilant. They have someone on guard duty. They have someone watching and making sure that some calamity is not going to overtake them. And so he's saying that as we await the coming of the Lord, we should be diligent because if we get haphazard, And we forget that he's returning. We may find ourselves destroyed because we lapse into the arms of the enemy and we become one of the enemy. And then suddenly Jesus returns and says, I don't even know who you are. And he casts us out. So he's saying, Watch. So that's something that we should do. I think it was in Matthew 23 where Jesus said, When you see these things coming on the earth, lift up your heads for your redemption draw nigh so that means shift your focus upward and be waiting and watching for his return and that's something that we can do and we should do yes we should be aware of what's going on on earth and I'm not one of those people who promotes it all that we should bury our heads in the sand and pretend that this that this catastrophic thing is not happening to our nation but at the same time that shouldn't be our primary focus. Our focus should be up here, knowing that Jesus is going to return and come quickly. Thirdly, we should endure hardness. 2 Timothy chapter 2, verses 1-4 to four. Thou therefore, my son, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. And the things that thou hast heard of me among many witnesses, the same commit thou to faithful men who shall be able to teach others also. Thou therefore endure hardness as a good soldier of jesus christ no man that warreth entangleth himself with the affairs of his life that he may please him with chosen him to be a soldier so you know we had veterans day on on friday and, and when that happens we remember with gratitude those who have served and have given their lives to help preserve freedom but those men have to endure hardness it's not easy to be a soldier you have to endure You have to put up with a lot of inconveniences and difficulties. And sometimes as Christians, that's something we stumble at. Enduring hardness is not easy. I've I've said it this way, and I, I believe this to be true, that in this world, our comfort is not God's priority. He doesn't care so much whether we're comfortable or not. He loves us, and He wants to give us good things. But our comfort is not His priority. Now, it will be in eternity. He's going to dote on his bride in eternity. He's going to make sure she's comfortable and happy. But right now, that is not his priority and his focus. So we have to endure hardness. What does it mean to endure hardness? Well, it means that sometimes you have to put up with something that you don't like to put up with. And you have to keep on keeping on. Have you ever known one of those people who every time something goes wrong, they quickly say, well, what did I do wrong? I need to adjust course. And sometimes you have to. Sometimes when you have to learn from the past, you can't ignore it. But sometimes the right thing to do is just keep on keeping on. Because you're, you're already doing what's right. You just need to keep doing what's right. So endure hardness. And then there's occupy in Luke 19 talks about the parable of the talents. And he says, he said, therefore a certain nobleman went into a far country to to receive for himself a kingdom and to return. And he called his 10 servants and delivered them 10 pounds and said unto them, occupy till I come. Well, what does that word occupy mean? Well, we were listening to uh, uh, a message from David Jeremiah the other day. And it was interesting, he talked about this a little bit. And he explained what he believed Occupy meant and I looked it up and, and it, it was in agreement with what I could find as well. It means, it doesn't mean to just sit down and wait. It means to carry on a business. To be busy and to do a work. So while we're here, we're to be doing God's work. Occupy until not come. And that may be a, a given. You may think, well, well of course. But yet to remind ourselves that that's why we're here is sometimes important. I'm not just here so that I can be comfortable and I can enjoy the comforts of life. I am here to do God's work. And that will help me make it through the night, so to speak, staying busy, doing the work that God has given me. And then there's the concept of comforting one another. You look in 1 Thessalonians 4, he talks about the return of Christ and He talks about how Jesus is going to come and he's going to bring his saints with him and he's going to blow the trumpet and all the the people who are the Christians who have passed will rise and then we won't precede them. In fact, I think we'll follow them. They will rise and go up first and then we'll go up with them and we'll catch up together with them in the air. Meet the Lord in the air. And then he says, wherefore comfort one another with these words. Remind each other that you're going to be caught up someday and pulled up to heaven. And we don't know when it's going to be. It could be any time. It could be this afternoon. It could be this morning. We're going to be taken up to heaven. And in 1 Thessalonians 5, the next chapter, Paul also says, Wherefore, comfort yourselves together and edify one another even as also you do. So comfort each other. That's one of the things, you know, Christians are sometimes really good at at snapping at each other but we should also comfort one another we should spend time encouraging each other and i think this this means in in everyday life you know if my brother gets a promotion at work do i take the time to tell him good job congratulations i'm really glad you did that because when you succeed we all succeed but sometimes you know satan tries to make us petty and say well I did do this i wish i could do that you know but what he really wants us to do is to comfort one another in various ways. And finally, neglect not the assembling of yourselves together. He talks about this in Hebrews 10. Let us consider one another to provoke and to love and to good works, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together as a manner of some is, but exhorting one another and so much more as you see the day approaching. So I'm going to close with that. There will be other ways as well, I'm sure. But I just wanna remind us that even though we are in a world that vexes us, a world that is completely out of sync with our values and what we know to be truth, it's not gonna be forever. God's gonna cut the time short. But while it is happening, let's take advantage of what God has given us so that it's not just a time when we crouch in our foxholes and cover our ears and our heads and wait till the battle's over, but that we actually rise up and we fight back until Christ returns and takes us home. Shall we pray? Father, we thank you for the promise in your word that you're going to shorten the reign of evil. It's not going to last forever. We feel sometimes, Lord, like we're in a situation where we're just vexed like Lot was in Sodom but we know that that vexation ended for Lot because Sodom was destroyed. And we know that the evil systems that are propped up by Satan himself are also gonna be destroyed. So we can take comfort, and I pray that you'd help us to take comfort and help us to be Christians that encourage and comfort one another, that do the work of God, and that move forward until the day when you return. We invite you to come, Lord. Come quickly and take us home.